رضوان أهلا مرحبا رمضان الذكر فيك يطيب والقرآن Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to SwissCast. I am your host, Brother Suhaib Webb. Today is the first of two podcasts dedicated to examining and understanding the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that talk about the trials and tribulations that will occur before the Day of Judgment. SwissCast, like, love, learn, share, rate, and review. Let's jump into today's cast. Bismillah. Welcome to SwissCast. I am your host, Brother Suhaib Webb. It's great to be with you. MashaAllah. Ramadan Kareem. Yes. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. It is upon us. May Allah bless each and every one of you to have a transformative, blessed month. Ameen, ameen, ameen. The Prophet ﷺ, once a man came to him and he said, Mata sa'a ya Rasulullah, when will be the day of judgment? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ma what have you prepared for it? We know that the day of judgment, the hereafter, al-akhirah is so important that as Imam Ibn Taymiyyah mentions, it is mentioned almost on every single page of the Quran, man. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin. There's the first page, right? Wabil Akhirati Hum Yuqinun. Second page says they believe in the hereafter. Uh, the third page, Wala Hum Adabun Alimun, talks about punishment in the hereafter. The fourth page, Wakuru Hanna Suwal Hijara, talks about the hellfire. The next page, Wabashiril Ladina Amanu. So almost every single page of the Quran, right? is mentioning and reminding us of the hereafter because we do have the potential to forget about it, especially in a world filled with news about Kanye, uh, the playoffs, uh, you know, abs, liposuction, you name it, right? There's a lot of things out that are keeping people busy, Bitcoin. But Islamic theology takes the science of eschatology, right? The end of times very seriously. Our scholars were very deliberate and very mature in how they approached this subject because they realized that if it was handled in a sloppy way or an irresponsible way, the end of times and belief in the end of times can actually be used to motivate people to do really, really bad things. We have a number of, a number of examples of this um, in recent times. I, I'll give you one um, I was contacted by a reporter a few years ago, about a year and a half ago, actually, uh, asking me if I thought that the impending Trump presidency was a sign of the end of times. And I was like, what? And she explained to me that there were a lot of people, whether from a negative perspective or a positive perspective, who, who saw the ascendancy of Donald Trump as really being a sign of the end of times. Another example within the Christian tradition, the evangelical tradition, is dispensational premillennialism, 
where you have this notion that you know premillennialism means the the eras that have been laid out by the bible and they identify like seven eras the era of innocence which is before they say the fall of adam the era of conscience which is from the fall of adam to the flood of of prophet nuh then the era of hu human government and promise which is from abraham to musa to moses and then law from moses to isa salam, to christ grace which they say is from the time of christ's ascendancy into heaven from our perspective from their perspective his crucifixion um and then after that to what's called the millennium and the millennium they believe is the kingdom where christ will return and in order for that to happen they believe that palestinians have to be evicted and removed from jerusalem banished from that land and the jews have to come back and conquer that land so you'll notice late at night sometimes if you if you're traveling and you're working and you turn on the tv in a hotel there are commercials evangelical churches encouraging people to support this cause dispensational premillennialism and and we see that now in the policy of this government uh, moving the embassy to jerusalem for america for many evangelicals 58 percent who believe that jesus is going to return in the next 40 years this is not about politics this is about prophecy and it is impacting and harming people the palestinian muslims and christians uh with impunity an example in the muslim world is around you know i think 1979 november 1979 uh there was a group of people several hundred people who took over masjid al-haram and one of them claimed to be the mahdi and you know asked people to follow him and there was a lot of bloodshed and a lot of murder and people were killed in recent months within the Muslim community, because of the onslaught on Ghulta in Syria, I've seen a large number of Muslims, um, I'm sure sincerely but irresponsibly, letting people know that the end of times is upon us. The irony of all of this is that usually people invoke the end of times as an excuse not to be responsible. Whereas the Prophet وسلم, when the man asked the Prophet والسلام, Mata sa when is the hour? The Prophet said, Ma So what I decided to do is dedicate a few podcasts to the idea of eschatology within the Muslim tradition to go through really three foundational aspects of our theology that will help you, inshaAllah, uh, and others when you hear people invoking um hadith about the end of times or you hear people completely dismissing uh, narrations about the end of times so we're going to look at it from from three perspectives and this episode will focus on two and then two weeks from now we'll, we'll tackle the last and the first two are number one is looking at the authenticity of a text right making sure that a text is authentic and then number two we're going to focus um, on a number of principles, around six principles, I'm not going to give all of them, that scholars used when interpreting and trying to understand text related to what's called Asharat al-Sa'a, right? The, the, the signs of the hour, um, or what's called Al-Fitan, the trials. So we're going to focus on six principles. And inshallah, these will be 
in my first book, Essentials of Islamic Faith, I allude to these concepts. In the second book, um, I'm going to place what I'm talking to you about now in greater detail in that book, insha'Allah ta'ala. So what we're going to do now is we're, we're focusing on one of the foundational principles of Islam is to believe in the hereafter. And from the components of the hereafter, of course, are the signs of the hereafter, the signs of the hour. We're going to focus on two principles that will help us uh, or two, two ideas that will help us approach this from our theology. The first is a principle related to authenticity. And then we're going to focus on six principles used for interpretation when engaging these kind of texts. So I encourage you, if you can, uh, to take notes if you're on your way to work. May Allah bless you and give you a great day at work today. Uh, you can listen again, inshallah. So first, let's start with a general principle for engaging hadith related to this subject. Because of course, the Quran, we know everything in the Quran came to us with tawatur. The Quran has reached us with so many chains that it's impossible to believe that anything would be fraudulent. The Quran is perhaps the most critiqued text in the Muslim community um, early on, such that we we can rest our hearts and our minds on the Quran without having any doubt that is authentically from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah says, right? This is a book, there is no doubt in it whatsoever. So the primary focus of this principle is going to be prophetic transmissions, right? Hadith transmitted on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. And the principle says, Al-Iqtisaru fi tanzili ala nususi al-wahyayn wa ta'akkud min sihatiha lafthan wa ma'nan. Which means that a person restricts themselves when trying to uncover proofs for the end of time to the Qur'an and to the Sunnah. So that's a very important principle. So it can't be based on dreams. It, it can't be based on, you know, deja vu. It can't be based on anything but the sacred text. And I talked about that in my first book because the signs of the hour are from what's called al-ghaybiyyat or sam'iyyat from the usul al-deen, from the foundations of religion, which means things that we have to hear. We have to hear from the Qur'an. We have to hear from the Prophet ﷺ. We have to learn. These are not things that can simply come through personal experiences. So al-iqtisar means that we restrict ourselves in looking for texts or uh, uh, looking for the signs of the hour to revelation. So that, that means that a pious person, a sheikh, an imam, my boss, whoever it is, cannot definitively predict the hour, the end of times. That can only come from, the signs can only come from, from the Quran, and from the authentic sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's why the axiom continues, min And that's going to take us now uh, into the first principle and then also lead us into the other six principles that I talked about. Because the first principle deals with authenticity. So that means we have to make sure the hadith is sound. When he says ma'nan, that means that we have to look at those principles used even if the text is authentic to understand the text. Okay, so let me let me review this quickly. The first axiom restricts us to revelation when it comes to affirming the signs of the hour. 
The second part of that axiom has two parts, and that is to affirm a text authenticity. But that's not enough. And this is where a lot of people make mistakes. They may find an authentic text and suddenly want to quote it and use it, but then lack the skills and the understanding of their principles used to understand those texts properly. Right. So the second part of the end of this axiom after affirming its authenticity is making sure that the meaning is applied and understood correctly. Now, let's take let's take the first notion, the idea of a text being authentic and apply it to the recent hadith that was used by a large number of people for Stalatul Muslimin Yawm al Malhama al Ghuta ila Janibi Madina Yuqadulaha Damashq. This hadith which people used um, and unfortunately even some of the uh, heterodoxical jihadist groups were using to try to get our young people to go to Syria. The narration of the Prophet وسلم, who said that the fortress of the Muslims on the day of Malhama of this great battle which is an apocalyptic battle uh, will be Ghuta and this city Ghuta lies next to a city which is called Damascus. This hadith is a weak hadith. Um, it's not allowed to use to encourage people to act on in a definitive way. And it doesn't fall under the type of weak hadith which can be used for targhib, like encouraging people to do like extra prayers or dhikr or fasting. This hadith is dealing with policy. And usually the norm is that when a hadith is dealing with policy, public policy in the Muslim community, it has to be authentic. Now, there are actually four narrations of this hadith. The first one is from Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu. And it is not strong because between the Prophet and the person who narrated it, the companion is not mentioned. So you have a non-companion mentioning this hadith without mentioning the Sahabi that he or she heard it from and going directly to the Prophet what we call irsal. And, and this type of irsal uh, is considered weak. There is another narration very similar to this back to Abu Huraira, which actually is connected. But one of the narrators, Ibn Abi Maryam, is weak, right? So the first narration, the narration of this hadith about Ghuta, going back to Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, excuse me, Abu Darda, is weak. The second is the hadith of Sayyidina Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, which has the same wording that the fortress of the Muslims on the day of Malhama will be Ghuta. This hadith, the narrators, actually some of them are known for being liars. Uh, some of them are considered matruk. It is considered an extremely weak narration. The third narration is that of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. And it is, it is so weak that time will not allow me to go through all of the reasons why it's weak. But scholars say that it is extremely weak, an extremely weak narration. So we went through three narrators of this hadith abu darda explaining why both of the chains back to him are problematic then we talked about the narration of sayyidina mu'adh explaining that in its chain also there are some very very weak narrators the same also with the narration of abu huraira then maybe people will ask then why are people out here saying that this hadith is authentic unfortunately uh, there is a narration of this hadith which is combined with another hadith which people have somehow kind of put out there. And the portion of the other hadith actually is sahih, whereas this portion is weak. So people took the portion of a hadith, which they added to this maybe um, to explain some things or to, to highlight some things, 
and unfortunately applied the authenticity of that part of that hadith to this hadith and told everybody that this hadith is sahih. It's not simple. And one of the things that I really hope you can take from this podcast is scholarship is essential. Like, I feel sometimes we don't appreciate and respect the the complexities and deliberateness of our ulama. And if you want easy religion, if you want simple religion, if you want a religion which doesn't have that intellectual grit, Islam may be not for you because Islam is a religion which is based on really, really profound, incredible, deep thoughts and deliberateness and scholarship. But the point I wanted to, to, to show here is that this hadith has been used. There's been memes made, pictures, people have given lectures on it, um, but the hadith is not strong. So invoking it to try to show that the end of times is upon us is extremely problematic. Now, that also takes us to, to the second part of that principle when he said, Right. So after we've kind of talked about the notion that issues related to the end of times have to be based on authentic texts, sound texts, uh, affirming that the, the chain of the hadith is strong and the text of the hadith is not having any weaknesses or or illal in it, and then restricting ourselves to revelation. Now we're going to talk about a number of principles that deal with how we actually understand an authentic text. And I can't emphasize how important this is. Um, Imam Abidawi is a great scholar, and I teach this uh, at Swiss, inshallah. Next year, we'll be teaching it online. Um, he mentions that, you know, the art of usul al-fiqh is rooted in ma'rifatul dalal ijmalan, is to know the evidences, but then he says, minha, but how to use evidences. Most people, and I can guarantee you if they haven't been trained and if they haven't gone through a proper system, which involves a number of years, right, of not only learning, but then applying and being tested and quizzed uh, about what they know, most people don't know the principles for how to use texts. And, and, and that's, that's problematic. And that's scholarship. That's learned. That, that's like someone who hones a sword. That's like someone who learns how to dunk a basketball. That's like someone who learns how to play music well. Um, understanding the application and usages of texts is an art. And it's learned, but also there's a gift uh, that Allah gives certain, certain scholars. So what we're going to talk about now are a few of those principles that kind of direct and guide how hadith around al-fitan and the end of times should be applied and understood. So let's start first with this principle, and this may shock a lot of you, that says, Al-Aslu fi tanzili ahadith al-fitan ala al-azmani wal-ashkhasi al-rad. Wow, man. And that means that the default when it comes to a non-scholar's application of hadith related to the end of times to a specific place, time, or person is that that non-scholar's assumption or notion is rejected. Al-Rad. Al-Aslu fi tanzili ahadith al-fitan 
Now, that's really important because usually these kind of discussions are sparked by people who are not scholars. By people who, you know, maybe they're having a bad day at work. Maybe they burn the biryani. I don't know. Right. Maybe they're having problems in their marriage. There's existential crises is happening. And those become now the, the wood that burns in their chest and allows them to calibrate a very, very dismal outlook to the world. So when a person's not a scholar and they start to say, yeah, you know, I think, you know, Donald Trump, Donald Trump's president, khalas, the world's over. That's rejected. Now, that doesn't mean that we reject those hadith, nor does it mean that we are laxed in their potential application. What that means is that their application is guided by scholars. So, al-aslu fi tanzil al-ahadith al-fitnati ala al-azmani wal-ashkhasi al-rad. Right, meaning for the, the layperson, the non-scholar, who begins to try to make these connections, the default understanding is to reject their interpretation. As for scholars, and as for people who are, are versed in these things, and we're going to talk about that shortly, then that's a different story. In fact, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were a group of companions who considered Ibn Sayyid as the Dajjal. Uh, Sayyidina Umar, he, he, he swore by Allah that Ibn Sayyid was a Dajjal. Others said he wasn't the Dajjal. During the time of Hajjaj Ibn Yusuf, when Asma bint Abi Bakr was presented uh, in front of him, uh, as well as in front of Al-Mukhtar, she, she said, She said that the Prophet said to us that in the tribe of Thaqif, there is going to be a liar and there is going to be a person who is destroyed. Uh, and, and she was talking about Al-Mukhtar Al-Thaqafi and she was talking about Al-Hajjaj Al-Thaqafi so she was talking about these two people and she was invoking a prophetic prophecy for things to come, right? And nobody rejected her because she knew what she was talking about. And that's why Imam Nawi he said, you know, scholars agreed uh, that Al-Mukhtar Al-Thaqafi was a person who claimed that Jibreel came to him and taught him, uh, was the person that the Prophet Ali was talking about and that also Al-Hajjaj was the one who was going to be ruined, and that's, you know, for obvious reasons in history. Uh, a recent example of scholars applying a hadith which talks about one of the signs of the end of times to our situation, to our context, is the hadith that the Prophet said, وَيَتَقَرَبْ zaman." Prophet said that from the signs of the hour is that time is going to move quickly. It's like, it's going to appear like it's so close to you. And you have a number of scholars qualified scholars who said what that's talking about is our ability to travel from, from one place to another with extreme speed, extreme speed. So I'm, I'm not saying that in general these things should be rejected. What I'm saying is from the layman, from the people who are not trained, the foundational principle, this is not my principle, this is from the foundations of our deen, is that their notion should be rejected. But when it comes from qualified scholars, then we should take heed and listen to it. But we're going to talk about a caveat to that in the future because not just one scholar but a body of scholars a large group of scholars as we'll mention shortly inshallah the second principle and this is really really important when it comes to uh, hadith and 
prophetic transmissions about the end of time. Al-Aslu Hamru Nasi Ala Zahirihi is that the, the, the default for interpreting a text should be its literal meaning, not its figurative, figurative one. Uh, another way to phrase that is the literal meaning of a text is the default for interpretation, while the figurative is an exception. That you see a lot in America, man. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, for example, when people say that the prophet said the hour will not start until the sun rises from the west, and they're like, you know, the west is a metaphor. No, 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 no. The, the, the foundation is the zahir, the, the literal or the explicit meaning of the text. Um, using majaz, using figurative language is permissible, but there are principles for that. And inshallah, at Swiss, we teach a class on balagha, uh, rhetoric, and also in usul al-fiqh, we talk about what are the principles for figurative usage. We see a lot of people now like saying some really weird things, uh, things which are unacceptable in our theology. And then they'll be like, well, you know, the figurative is allowed in Islam. No, the figurative is allowed when it's founded by principles, not philosophy, not your emotions, but foundations. Al-Qawaid. So again, Al-Aslu, Hamlu, Al-Nasi, Al-Zahirihi. That the default is that the literal meaning of a text forms the foundational interpretation, while the figurative meaning is an exception. I gave the example that the hour will not start until the sun rises from the west. Someone told me once that was me. That was like, you know, all the Muslim converts in America and Europe. I'm like, that's insanity, man. That's insanity. The meaning of the hadith, if you go back to the early, early scholars up until now of hadith, they've all interpreted that hadith to be literal. And there is no reason within the text itself to go from the literal to majaz. Majaz actually means to pass. Jawastu. Like I passed by something, right? I passed beyond something. There's nothing that would allow someone to pass beyond the literal interpretation. Another example of this is I remember in the 90s, there were people saying that laptop computers were the Dajjal. Uh, I've heard people say that the cameras on the phone are Dajjal. I've heard people say the minions on Despicable Me are the Dajjal. This is a complete disregard for the principles of interpretation. And it is a very sloppy, uh, irresponsible usage of hadith and descriptions about the end of time and trying to contextualize them into people's lives now, which can create a lot of problems. I remember, man, there was a brother that I knew who got rid of his laptop and that brother didn't pass school, man. Because he thought the laptop, subhanAllah, was the Dajjal. This is something that I heard from Sheikh Akram Nadawi uh, once when I was talking with him. That these kind of things, and I mentioned it a second ago, are not open to like philosophy. These kind of things are not open to whims. Allah said, don't follow people's desires. Our scholars were very deliberate in making sure that these things were rooted what was the goal of these of these principles in in the meaning of the text itself in 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 the prophetic ethos if you will so it's not allowed to just suddenly jump from a literal meaning to a figurative meaning based on whims and if someone doesn't know the principles from going from the literal to the figurative then they have to stay at the literal unless they are taught something different by a qualified scholar
So we took two principles, right? Number one, that for the layman to try to interpret these things and contextualize them into a specific time, place, or group of people, that's rejected. Number two is that we go with the literal before the figurative, right? Usually, usually. The third principle, أَنْ يَكُونَ التَّنْزِيلُ بَعِيدًا عَنِ التَّكَلُّفِ Man, this is important if you think about like David Koresh and all of the Christian cults and even some of the strange Muslim cults that have, you know, come up over oh, oh, through history. And that is that the interpretation, the application, the interpretation of these kind of texts is free of complications and being overly burdensome. What does it mean by complications? Meaning that understanding it is not like impossible. It's not too difficult. It's not like a thousand different things that I have to understand to get to the point. It's very clear. A great example that scholars give is the Dajjal. There are so many ahadith of Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, that clearly and specifically state that the Dajjal is a human being. Such that the companions thought Ibn Sayyid was the Dajjal. Some of them did, right? So they were looking for a person, right? They were looking for a person. To overcomplicate that goes against the, the clarity of the Prophet Sallallahu teachings. Number two, and this is really important, is that it's not burdensome. I remember in 1999, there were a group of Muslims who left America and went to a mountain on Lebanon on New Year's Day and watch the sun rise or set because they were told the Mahdi is coming, these Sunni Muslims. And they went and did it. They spent their money, right? They, they gave away their property. They relocated their families. And guess what? The Mahdi didn't show up. We're going to talk about the Mahdi, uh, radiallahu anhu, inshallah, in the next episode of this. But that's like burdening people in ways which is unacceptable. Um, Notions of the end of the hour should not harm people in their marriages, in their families, in their property, in their wealth, in, in, in their dignity. It should not lead to a cult. We're going to talk about that in the last principle, inshallah. Um, the fourth principle, and this is important, is التحقق من طبيعية الواقعة واستكمالها للأوصاف الواردة في النص. And that is that, number one, التحقق من طبيعية الواقعة واستكمالها للأوصاف الواردة في النص. And that is to verify, and this is for the scholars, that a situation, its time, its place, and its people agree completely with the text in reference to something that's happening at the end of time. So that implies that the particulars and the universals align, meaning the major signs and the minor signs, the major objects in that time amongst those people in that place all align before the text can be applied. And that's why, and this is really, really important. You might want to write this down if you have, if, if you're able to. We say that these kind of texts, texts which deal with the end of times, eschatology and fitan and so on, have three components. Number one is the text. Number two is the situation or the people it's addressing. And then number three, the action that should take place when it happens. 
So the text, the situation, and if mentioned, and if mentioned, the action. And that action could be wajib, haram, right? Mubah, makru. It could be any of the major rulings depending on how it's found in the text, right? So the text, the situation, and the action, meaning the ruling and the action itself. So for text related to the end of time to be matched with a given, given period or people, those three have to align. The text, the situation or the person, and the action. All three of those have to align. What's called is called intibaq, right? The, 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 the marriage, if you will, of the text, al-nas, bil-zaman, wal-a'mal, wal-hukum, wal-ashqas, right? What's called tatabuq that all these things align together. And that's why um, one of the great scholars said, فَإِذَا لَمْ يَكُونْ هُنَاكْ تُطَابُقْ تَتَابُقْ بَيْنَ الْوَاقِعِ الْحَاصِلِ وَبَيْنَ جَمِيعِ أَوْصَافِ النَّصِ لَمْ يُصِحْ التَّنْزِيلُ حِينَ إِذِنْ One of the great scholars commenting on this said, if there is no corroboration between the time and the text or the person in regards to every description found in the text, then the application is not allowed. And that also takes us to a second component. That a person cannot be ignorant of the situation, time, place, or people that the text addressed. So number one is the scholar has to make sure that these things all align. And number two, someone who is not a scholar or isn't aware of the current situation they need to step back and be careful. There is a lot of examples of this. I'll give you one. Uh, I mentioned the, 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 the sun rising from the west is a great one. The Dajjal being a laptop computer is one. And then also the idea of the Mahdi coming and people waiting uh, on top of the mountain. Uh, those are really problematic and dangerous. Are there examples, though, where this was applied and it actually worked? So, you know, you have the famous hadith of the Prophet Turk, Right? The hadith in Sahih Muslim where the Prophet said the, the hour will not come until the Muslims fight the Turks. And then the Prophet he mentions their descriptions. You know, he, he says that their faces look like hammered shields. You know, they will wear hair. And their shoes will be made of hair. And then there's like a number of narrations in Sahih Muslim that go into great detail about the attributes of who the Prophet was talking about. Of course, now the Turks are Muslim, alhamdulillah. But Imam al nawi in his commentary on Sahih Muslim says, after mentioning these hadith, I mentioned one, but there's a large number of them that talk about the characteristics and attributes of the uh, of the Turks. He says, وَهَذِهِ كُلُّهَا مُعْجِزَةٌ لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم. He said, this is actually a miracle of the Prophet Because he says about them, فَوُجِدُوا بِهَذِهِ الصِّفَاتِ كُلِّهَا فِي زَمَانِنَا He said, because we're fighting the Turks now, and by God, they have every single attribute mentioned by the Prophet in these hadith. Hence, it's a miracle. Another recent example, of course, is the hadith of Jibreel when the Prophet talks about the naked, barefoot, poor Bedouins who will compete to build large buildings. 
and you look now Burj Dubai, you see the tower being built in Saudi Arabia, you see people who came from a Bedouin background, people who less than a hundred years ago were extremely poor. And that's why Imam Al-Hafid ibn Rajib says, you know, what we understand from this is that somehow these people are going to acquire wealth that will allow them to compete in building large buildings. That's why many scholars are saying this is applicable right now to what we're seeing in the Gulf countries. The fifth principle is مراجعتُ أهل العلم is to go to the people of knowledge. We talked about this a lot to make sure that we're, we're engaging scholars, that we're asking questions, and doing that requires humility and patience. Most people may have the humility, but they don't have the patience. People want, they want their answers like In-N-Out Burgers, man. They want their answers like immediately. But scholars are cautious. And scholars tend to be very patient. So مراجعتُ أهل العلم and there's a really cool story. I'll give you just one example of this is Hafs ibn al-Ghayyath. And this is not Hafs, of course, the, the reciter of the Quran. This is a different person. But during his lifetime, and this is you know early in Muslim history, he noticed that people were starting to say that the Mahdi was coming. And, and some people even said that the Mahdi was there in their city. So he went to Sufyan al-Thawri, of course, this great, great scholar. And he said to him, قَدْ أَكْثَرُوا فِي الْمَهْدِي Like, إِنَّ النَّاسَ قَدْ أَكْثَرُوا فِي الْمَهْدِي فَمَا تَقُولُ فِي Like, people are all talking about the Mahdi. They're saying the Mahdi is here. And, and Sufyan said, إِنْ مَرَّ عَلَى بَابِكْ If you saw the Mahdi, right, he's being rhetorical. If you saw the, and cynical to a degree, if you saw the Mahdi, what you thought was the Mahdi in front of your door, فَلَا تَكُنْ مِنْهُ فِي شَيْءٍ Don't join him and, 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 and don't get involved حَتَّى يَجْتَمِعَ النَّاسُ عَلَيْهِ Until the scholars agree that that's the Mahdi. And, and, and one of the dangers of, of the post-modern world that we live in now is hatred for the ulama. And this is the outcome of white supremacy, its influence in our community, a post-enlightenment Christianity that's really infiltrated the hearts and minds of people um, who tend to look at the role of Muslim scholars in a way that Christianity, especially Protestant Christians, look at scholars in their history, where these are two very different stories. So we tend not to respect the ulama, and we need to be very, very careful. Um, we respect the ulama, we hold them accountable, and those are ulama who make egregious mistakes. Of course, that's, that's a different story. There's a, a sixth principle that I learned from my teacher, Dr. Muhammad Wissam, when we were reading the Muatta together. This is around 10 years ago. We used to read it every morning. And he mentioned to me, we were talking about evangelicals and the displacement of Palestinians and the justification for this in a religious vein. And he said to me, it's very interesting that one of the principles of interpretation that scholars use is that it is not allowed to rush the signs of the hour. So like, I'm going to go out and start building huge buildings, right? Or I'm going to go out and start, you know, doing things which I believe are going to somehow cause the day of judgment to happen or Mahdi to happen or the return of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salatu salam. And he said, لا حكم في ترغيبي هذه الأشياء. Like there's no ruling encouraging people to do this. We should not be encouraging people to do this because oftentimes it hurts others. So we covered a lot, mashallah, and th this podcast may be a little longer than normal. I apologize to you, but I feel that it's extremely important that we 
discuss eschatology, right, the end of times, and our approach towards it. And I have to say this, that it is the most mature approach of any religion. Islam's approach to this is superior to any other religion's approach. And I say that um, just being honest and looking at what's going on in Palestine, looking, looking at what's happening in the world in the name of religion, people are really harming people. Um, so let's quickly go through the principles that I mentioned. Number one was related to the narration of the Prophet being authentic. The second are the principles related to making sure that the authentic text is understood correctly. So the first was that the notions of a layman regarding the application of the hadith related to the end of times is rejected. Whereas the notions of scholars, uh, when they are, and I believe there should be scholarly bodies for this, not just one person. And I wanted to say it was my caveat that I mentioned earlier, that this has to be done by a large group of scholars, like the majami'i fiqiyah, and so on and so forth. When they come together and agree that something is real and something is happening, uh, then we need to pay heed to that. The second principle is that the literal meaning of a text is the default interpretation, while the figurative meaning is an exception. The third principle is that the interpretation is not overly complicated nor irrationally burdensome on people. We gave the example of people going to the mountain and waiting for the Mahdi in Lebanon. The fourth principle is that, we, th that the scholar has to make sure that a situation, time and place and text align completely. Align completely. Um, the fifth is that we, we, we consult scholars, we engage scholars. We gave the example of Sufyan Thawri and the person saying, you know, the Mahdi had arrived. And he said, of course, don't follow until the scholars agree. And then the sixth is that people should not be trying to rush the end of times by doing things that they believe are going to cause those signs of the hour to happen. Next time, inshallah ta'ala, next week we have an amazing podcast with uh, Sister Mona uh, Banani talking about how we can go to a zero-waste lifestyle in the month of Ramadan. It's amazing how to get rid of those plastics, right? How to get plastic out of our life, which is destroying our world, destroying our environment, and causing a lot of harm to the world around us, whether it's through conflict or just straight-up people being exploited. And then the week after that, we'll return going to talk about the history of events that happen at the end of time so that you have a kind of a map in your mind of how things are going to play out inshallah we ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be pleased with us in this month of ramadan please share like ask questions rate review love swiss cast assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah ولم يزل لك في نفوس الصالحين مكان بالنور جئت وبالسرور ولم يزل لك في نفوس الصالحين مكان يتلون آيات الكتاب يتلون آيات